Hi, this is Nicole Masters and welcome to the Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome, everybody, to The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. As you might be able to tell by now, uh, I've been a bit under the weather and um, my voice is not the greatest. Or maybe it's better, I'm not sure. Um, But, wow, this has been a crazy week. But today on the podcast, we are going to be talking with Nicole Masters of Integrity Soils. She is an expert in ecology and in soil science. And we have a real great conversation about soil health and how it's connected to human health. So um, Nicole advises farmers. She said that she's got, um, I think, over a million acres of land uh, under her um, supervision. So we talk about that. We talk about the soil health. We talk about um, worms and worm farming because she started out uh, doing worm farming. We talk about um, mindset, the mindset of farmers and the mindset of consumers. Um, And we talk about integrity. You know, I ask her a little bit about, um, you know, where she got the idea for the name and everything. And then it leads into a little bit of uh, philosophical talk. So, yeah, um, this is a really interesting interview and... um, One of those things, um, last week I didn't put out a podcast, uh, and I'll get to that in in a minute, but uh, this week I had a great interview with uh, Nicole Masters, and then all of a sudden, I didn't even realise, but once I was loading up the audio, I I was like, oh no, my side of the audio, halfway through, wasn't recording or the the sound level had gone down. So then I went back through and I re-recorded my questions. So it's still Nicole answering the question and to the best of my ability, I re-recorded the questions um, that I had asked. So you'll notice that about almost halfway through, about 30, 30 minutes in, you'll notice that um, the sound changes, my voice changes because I've been having this crazy um, flu this last week. Um, So uh, let's just talk a little bit about last week. I didn't put out a podcast last week. I interviewed um, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride and that was actually quite an interesting interview. Um, Although I wouldn't say it was an interview. If anyone's heard um, her talk before, at least on a podcast, it was more of a monologue. And in fact, I listened to some other podcasts that were exactly the same word for word. So obviously that's the way she does things, Um, but I wasn't really happy with it. And then we had some major internet issues as well. So um, that's what was going on 
uh, last week. If you are interested, I may put out some of uh, what we recorded, but it would not. It's not going to be in in interview um, style. Anyways, so that's what happened last week. Um, apologies to all of you who are hanging out for another um, Probiotic Life podcast. Uh, but we're back on this week. And actually next week, I'm super stoked to release a podcast, um, a- an interview that I did with Peter McCoy um, of Radical Mycology. So that is uh, a really cool one, uh, one that I was really um, excited to do. And yeah, we got into some really great stuff about mycology. So, but that's next week. So this week, Nicole Masters, and um, yeah. Without further ado, here is the interview with Nicole. Today, with us on the show, we have Nicole Masters. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Oh, great! Thanks for having me, Ben. Excited. And um, I first heard about you through, I think I actually saw uh, an event that you were at here in Perth, Western Australia, not too long ago, and got me interested in um, what you were doing, because I I love hearing anybody who talks about soil and and about the Mm. uh, the microbes uh, especially. So um, yeah, thanks for joining us here on the podcast, and let's talk about soil. Yeah, my favorite subject. So, um, so let's go back a little bit. You you started. You got your um, bachelor's of science um, at uh, Otago University. Is that right? Otago. Otago. Yeah. yeah, I I actually went down there to be a great white shark researcher and discovered soil, which is so much more exciting. Right. Okay. So l- tell us a little bit about that. How did that go from going from great white shark researcher? Um, when you do ecology degrees, so that's what I, what my degree is in, they make you look at the most basic of life forms. So you start with plant physiology and, uh, you know, protozoas and kind of the real basic, you know, how the cells work. And I just got increasingly interested from, so I went from zoology in my first year to more botany in my second year. And then third year I discovered soil and um, there was just no turning back. Yeah, the just the light went on for me. I think when we're talking soil, then we're really talking well everything. <laughs> everything comes back to soil. So you know, there's so many things I think that um, at, at a societal level we have real concerns about, and and so much of that comes back to soil health. So I've never lost that passion, and you know, it's been nearly twenty years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so mm. to to get to that point of um, even wanting to do uh, ecology. What what were some of the things that really uh, were either turning points or things that you remember in your life growing up that really connected you with the with the earth with the ecology? Um, so my my father and my grandfather were both pilots, and I grew up on an air force base and spent my life in aircraft looking down and. From like my earliest memories, I just had real concerns around erosion and um, you know subdivision and uh, suburban sprawl. And in when I was five, Mount St Helens erupted, and my grandmother had me subscribe to National Geographic. So like every month, I'd run down to the letterbox to get my National Geographic, and just was just so inspired and excited about Mount St Helens and that kind of power that the earth could have to just totally transform the landscape and, you know, 
know, really how insignificant we all were. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just, I think I've always had an interest much larger than myself. And then when I was 10, my father moved us to Hong Kong and we lived in Hong Kong for six years. And, you know, that at the time was the most um, heavily populated place on the planet and just looking around and seeing how people would live in their own filth and smog and, you know, plastic and just stuff all over the water and smog all over our vehicles and our, um, and just being really like, actually, if we don't interrupt what's happening currently in the trajectory we're on, then people will actually live in their own filth. Mm. So it takes the willingness to, to be part of a conversation to say, no, let's interrupt this, what's possible in terms of transformation. And so, you know, increasingly I've, I've become more and more interested in the transformation of agriculture, but I'm working very much with mainstream producers. So originally when I started out, I was, you know, working more with organic and, you know, permaculture and biodynamic and realized pretty quickly, you know, that actually it's the mainstream farmers that I need to be working with and communicating with and, um, you know, being in their worlds, you know, mm-hmm. how to, how do we make sure things are profitable? Because um, that's what, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that's what counts for farmers. And actually, if we're looking after the ecology and the environment, then um, the economy works too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know, we've talked to, um, Quite a few people in that sort of arena. Uh, Joel Salatin talking about how, what he does on his farm with the um, wow, the, yeah. uh, the ballet in the pasture, as he calls it, of you know moving all the animals around. Um, so we, we've heard it from a technical side. We've talked to Graham Sade about you know like this this connection about you know soil health and human health. Um, so mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to really talk to you because I don't think we've done this for a, a, a little while, and this is like really my passion of what actually happens in the soil and how do we get, you know, clean mm-hmm. water? How do we get clean air? Um, wh- mm-hmm. Why is the soil so important? So, so let's, let's go down into the soil there. What, what's sort of some of the main key things to, um, to know about the soil? Well, I think if you already have an interest in human health and nutrition, then it gives you a lot of keys and clues to what's happening in the soil because a lot of the dynamics in terms of nutrient interactions are very similar. Um, If you consider the gastrointestinal system of the human body, there's some real similarities in terms of how microbiology are working. So we have a microbial bridge in between that you know, gastrointestinal system with biology that are producing uh, enzymes and vitamins and hormones and antibiotics and all sorts of stuff in that gut system. Um, And that enables, uh, you know, material to be broken down, like say you've eaten an apple and it breaks it down smaller so the nutrients can be passed through into the bloodstream. Well, that process is pretty much what we're talking about around the the rhizosphere, so the root interface with soil is... um, the most um, dynamic, uh, has the most biodiversity um, on the planet is around that root zone and it's it has that biodiversity for a reason. So it's all about, um, you know, building nutrition and these things that we call secondary metabolites, so they're things that plants use for plant defense. And we're just starting to really scratch on the surface of this concept, which is quorum sensing or chemical signaling from plants to microbiology to provide either protection or um, 
nutrition or hormones or whatever it is that the plant's looking for. So these breakthroughs are happening at the moment in human health. I mean, I think they're, I think they're saying now that, you know, 90% of human health conditions are related to the health of the gut. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that same interrelationship with the rhizosphere and um, soil microbiology. So, um, you know, a lot of the time I talk about this and think, oh my gosh, you know, we just know nothing. We really... <laughs> We really are just scraping on the surface of the new frontier and it's incredibly exciting. And we've, we've been seeing things for a long time in the field and go, okay, why is it we can increase, say, something like conjugated linoleic acid in, in beef or trace elements or vitamins, um, let's say, in your vegetables by working with soil microbiology? So, you know, how do we really support a very diverse ecosystem? Because a lot of our common you know, modern farming techniques are all disturbance techniques. They are all disturbing microbiology in one way or the other. So we end up with um, less diversity of soil microbiology. We end up with less nutrition coming through into the plant because it's that interface that's providing nutrition. So it's that interface where we're getting, you know, your B vitamins or vitamin A or whatever, um, and your trace elements is coming through from microbiology. So every time we disturb it, so, you know, people normally think, okay, disturbance, we're talking about tillage, but things like soluble phosphate fertilizer, that's a disturbance, um, urea, nitrogen, um, fungicides, herbicides. We're just seeing some incredible um stuff around what happens to the physiology of the plant and what's happening to microbiology that's compromising then the health and nutrition of the plants that we're growing. So, I mean, I, I guess most of your listeners, you know, are aware of this, that we've lost between 40 to 60% of the nutrition in our food, which Graham State probably mentioned too, mm-hmm. since 1940s, you know. So, we have this whole potential to, can we get back to 1940s? And actually, can we do even better than that? Because we now have science on our side. We're not going back to farming like our great great grandfathers were we know more now than we did back then and we're able to really work with you know real husbandry i see Mm-hmm. I could talk about this forever, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to yep. touch touch on something that you mentioned briefly that I have, I think I read once. Um, what did you call it? Quorum sensing? Quorum sensing, yeah. So they've known about quorum sensing in terms of this is how ants or bees maybe communicate. This is how inflorescence in the sea works. You know, when, you know, if you splash the water and all lights up at night, um, that that there's a signaling process. So scientists actually discovered that there's a signaling process in terms of uh, virulence um, of diseases. So they were looking at um, staphylococci in the, no, strep throat, streptococcus in the throat and discovered that there's a chemical signal that when the bacteria get to a certain level, they switch on a signal which turns everybody virulent. And then there's something called quorum quenching, whereby a chemical signal is sent out and everything switches off. Mm. So we're seeing the same process in terms of root exudates and microbiology switching on and switching off. So I've been working for a long time in vermiculture. So my where I started in my career was actually with worms. I love worms. Don't get me started mm. about worms. But, um, <laughs> you know, and, and so, we, you know, I've got clients all over the world that are probably using as little as, um, you know, five litres per hectare of a worm extract and just getting phenomenal results. And we're going, how is it you could put so little out and get such a plant response and such a response in terms of carbon sequestration and um, herbicide um 
because you have a lot of herbicide resistance issues, you're actually confronting herbicide resist- resistance, for instance, by just using a little bit of worm tea. And quorum sensing actually explains that mechanism. So you're basically putting out a tiny bit of a signal that says to biology, wake up, turn on, let's go. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's that's very yeah. interesting. So, so there's, because, uh, you know, I think we've mentioned before, like, the whole um, mycelial network, but this is actually yes. different as well. This is different information passing through for the microbes. That's right. That's right. Okay. And 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 mycorrhizae are using it as well, but it's a it's a mechanism whereby the plant is sending a signal. So the plant would be saying something like, "Hey, I've got an aphid issue here. Uh, can you um, bring me some zinc?" And they'll actually send a chemical signal through the mycorrhizae or directly to the microbiology around the root to say, bring mm. me zinc. And mm. if that uh, microbiome is intact, then the microbiology that's responsible for getting zinc will bring it to the plant. If, however, that soil environment's disturbed, that plant can signal to its heart's content and it won't get a response. Wow. Okay. The, this, like, yeah. this is just getting me excited right now. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The, um, let's go to worms. We, we, I do composting workshops or waste reduction workshops. So when I talk mm-hmm. about compost, I'm helping people uh, reduce their waste rather than creating the premium sort of uh, premium compost product. for their for their garden. But when I, when I do talk about that, we go through the worm farms because lots of people like worm farms. Um, mm. And I say, look, don't don't try and go for the leachate. Go for the worm castings. That's where the the gold is. Um, yeah. So, so you said you you had some experience, or you started in in worms. How, how, what did you learn yes. about worms, and, and what what do you still use about um, from from that now? Um, so, I was producing vermicast on a commercial level. So, my father basically helped me set up a worm farm business. Um, so, I was selling um, bagged vermicast or vermicast in bulk to compost tea or um, organic producers that are wanting extracts. Um, So probably my first learning was uh, the perfect worm farm system makes no leachate. So if you're making leachate, Mm -hmm. then you haven't got enough carbon in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And what what I find is most vermicasts is very bacterial dominated, um, which is not ideal. So if you have a bacterial dominated vermicast, you could leave it out and have a look and see what grows on it. And what you often find is it'll grow weeds. Um, Mm. because bacterial-dominated environments is what weeds prefer. So even if you are in a home environment, I really encourage you to get some leaf duff or some wood chip. When I'm talking about wood chip, I'm talking about white wood. So um, it's a bit hard in Western Australia, right? (laughs) There's not a lot of white woods. So if if you can't get hold of white wood, so that's like the English species, poplar, willow, birch, beech, elm, species like that. And actually in the city, you do have those species. Softwood, so species that are pretty fast growing, they break okay. down really quickly. They are very fungal, fungal activated growth uh, material. So I would encourage people to just put a little bit of that into their worm farms, increase your, your, your carbon, so your cardboard and um, paper, so you're not producing any leachate. And if you make any leachate, then put it back onto that worm farm. Um, yeah, so when we make when we make an extract, um, then we actually take the finished vermicast and run water through that, and then that's how you get the liquid. So commercially, that's how you get a liquid, and it's very stable. Like it'll sit there for like a year. It won't cook. It won't go smelly. If it goes smelly, then it is it's a leachate or the vermicast hasn't finished processing. Right. 
That's great. That's so that's so important to really to to uh, make yep. that distinction. And I'm glad that you have touched on that because a lot of people they're like, oh yeah, yeah we got, I got lots of leachate out of there. And first yeah, yeah. of all, I asked them how long has it been sitting in the bottom of the worm farm if it's one of those little um, <laughs> residential worm farms. Um, yeah. and, and and second of all, do you, do you leave the um, tap open or what? Like, how do you do it? Or are you aerating it? And most people, they just have this stinky stuff that they pour yeah. neat on their most mostly on their um, vegetables. And I'm like, that is Ugh. not the right thing to do. That's just nasty. Don't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and that could be that you've fed them, you know, watermelon or whatever you're feeding them and you're just it's just the the oozing material that's come through that might not have even passed through a worm. So it's it's technically not um, a worm extract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're using worm extract on I've probably got so I've got about a million acres running my programs now, which is very exciting. Awesome. Um and I've probably got hundred and eighty thousand acres running um, worm, worm extracts. And so this is aerated vermicast that you're that you're so it's, using. Uh, yeah. So it's there's a couple of different ways. So some of it's commercially brought worm extract, and some of it's um, just put through an extractor. So you've got commercial scale extractors. So you're pumping air and water basically through finished vermicast, and it's a through it's a through flow system. So you're not aerating. You're not kind of messing about. You just extract straight off, and it's really stable. I don't like kind of messing around with aeration and um, anything that means you've then got to reply it immediately. Particularly if you're talking about thirty thousand acre sized operations, you know True. they they can't. Yeah, so we're going to have a stable product, and so that's how we do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, now before yeah. we move off. Um, Worms. Uh, I I have read a little bit of uh, stuff about the purple non-sulfur bacteria being uh, like a high component in worm castings. Do you know uh, much about that? Uh, the what bacteria? Sorry. Uh, PNSB, purple non-sulfur bacteria. Yep. So there's a component of that, but I don't know a lot about that. I'd have to say. Okay. So so the the, the reason why I'm interested is be, why I'm asking you is because. Um, uh, I I uh, am a proponent of Korean natural farming, which is basically okay. using yep. using inputs around, and it's similar to um, if you know like Bokashi EM and yep. uh, purple non-sulfur bacteria is apparently one of the the key um, microbes within there, and they seem they from what I understand they they're really amazing. So I, I'm interested in learning more about that and you know what that means for how we apply our worm castings or Korean natural farming sort of methods? Mm, I, uh, are they an anaerobe? They're not a facultative organism, are they? Uh, they they are facultative, but apparently okay. they can also they also eat electrons. So this is very interesting to me. Um, mm, yeah, there's so, a lot of new stuff coming out around eating electrons, which is very yeah, fascinated yep. by. Yeah. So, so now, now I'd like to just talk a bit about, um, I mean – Tell me where you want to go with this, but I'm interested in what you're doing in the field, hands-on experience. You're in Montana at the moment. What are you, what are you doing yep. there and what are you teaching? Um, <laughs> next week I've got a workshop in Montana teaching like um, monitoring in the field. So how does a rancher know if their, if their soil health program is moving forwards or backwards or their pasture program? So giving them tools around reading um, pasture quality and um, visual soil health assessments and yeah, just how, how do we meet, 
how do we meet their goals? So the, the ranch that I'm on right now, um, people very dear to my heart, and I've been working with them since 2014. And what we've done effectively on the irrigated ground anyway is we've lifted um, relative feed value by – 30%. So what that means is that the quality of what we're producing is increased by 30%. So they can, what they've done is they're running 25% more animals on the land because every mouthful has more nutrition in it. So the grass probably effectively looks the same, but it's got 30% more value in mm. it. Um, and we've done that through a mixture of things. So um, some fish hydrolysate, so fish with a bit of fish oil in it, um, worm casting, some trace elements, and interestingly, sodium. Um, we're using a sea mineral. Um, it's interesting when I travel the world that how many places are actually um, sodium deficient, and people I know in Western Australia get all freaked out because you've got salinity issues, but mm. um, that sodium's come from somewhere, and often it's come from, especially in old landscapes, it's leached off the top, and it's coming through the bottom because of, you know, generally poor management, or it's, you know, you get alkali areas because it's concentrating, but it's very interesting to me how often I go into a place and they have a major sodium deficiency. Wow, Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very interesting. In in Korean natural farming, they use seawater. Um, they yep. mix it in with other things, thirty to one. So you know, you're not getting the uh, detrimental effect of the salt, but you're getting all those yeah. min- minerals, including the sodium. Yeah, and if you look at how much we're using, like um, we had a great case where we, we were using seawater on a high country station in New Zealand, and we put on seventy liters per hectare. So if you actually look at how much grams of salt that is, um, in a litre of seawater, there's 35 grams of sodium. So it's actually not that much, you know, sodium product as such that's actually going out onto a hectare of land. So it's a tiny amount, but the difference that it can make in terms of um, feed value and nutrition, in terms of animal health, I mean, the the response that we got from that particular operation was just phenomenal because they had a lot of issues with erosion. Um, as well, mm. which is happening everywhere. I mean, Western Australia, you guys are your biggest resource, or your biggest exports is soil still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, the reason for that is we don't have active fungi in the system. So in this particular trial on this high country station, we put seawater and uh, fish with a humic acid to feed the fungi and their erosion stopped overnight and we didn't have erosion again until they had a massive earthquake and the whole hillside came down. But there's some things oh, I can't wow. help people with. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the key to the key to really holding soils together and to stop sedimentation and loss of, you know, um, fishery beds and water quality and everything comes down to fungi. And, again, when we talk about disturbance, they're the first ones to leave the building um, in these highly disturbed environments. Mm. Yeah. So, so can you can you um, share with us like uh, a couple of stories or a story of what you've seen or what you've helped um, regenerate in in the uh, the pastures or the the land that you um, help manage or advise for? Hmm. I've got some clients that that these ones are fairly new, so we're still in transition, but um, they're right up the top of. Alberta, Canada, on latitude 60. So, I mean, they're nearly at the end of what's possible in terms of agriculture. Um, And they were in the top 1% of producers and putting on, you know, pretty high amounts of things like nitrogen and fungicides and herbicides and everything else, Um, and it was costing them a fortune. But they were in the top 1%, so they were really proud of being, you know, high-producing 
uh, of producers of of uh, uh... wheat and barley and okay. canola and peas. So um, they did a lot of research on me <laughs> before they um, gave me a call. I think they've been stalking me for like four years or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, they really wanted to. They really wanted to know they could trust. And, and inviting me out to see them. So it's a, it's a 30,000 acre operation. And within one year, we dropped the nitrogen from 110 kilograms a hectare to 30 kilos a hectare. We dropped the herbicide by 30%. We dropped their um, pesticides by 95%, their fungicides by 100%. Um, we had the equivalent yield, even though they'd had um, – just over an inch of rain last season. And I'm pretty sure they made close to a million dollars above what they would have made normally. So um, for me, this whole, we're talking about biology. We're talking about, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, go from, how do we transition? There's no risk or there's no losing in this scenario. It's how do we feed biology? How do we deal with what our limiting factors are? So in this particular operation, they have really, really tight, tight soils um, that the roots couldn't really penetrate through. So I worked with um, a really great company that made me a prill that, so a prill is like a hard kind of, you know, fertilizer kind of tablet, little, little ones, little granules. And we made it with a humate and a gypsum and trace elements. So the humate's there to feed your fungi and the gypsum helps to open up or flocculate underneath that root. So the root could penetrate immediately. So we went from not being able to get roots below two inches to roots that have been going down, you know, eight inches was the last count um, in one season. So now we can reach water. Now we can reach minerals that the plant couldn't access before. So my process is very much around how do we identify what a limiting factor might be on a property. So is it a mineral issue? Is it a microbial issue? Is it management or is it mindset? <laughs> and a lot of the mm. time, mm-hmm. you know, we're working with what's possible for people. So we do, you know, we do a lot of, um, you know, my company does a lot of work in that professional development of, you know, getting your ego out of the way and getting to really what the core is for what, what do people want it what do they want for the operation? So someone might say they want money, but actually what do you want money for? And what you might find is they want to, you know, really look after their kids or, you know, have more time to have time off and have a holiday or whatever it might be. But um, so really working with people about what do they want to see? And these guys up in Canada, they still wanted to be at the top 1%, but they, they knew that if they don't start addressing their soil health, concerns they won't be farming up there in the future they knew mm-hmm. that their soils were getting tighter and tighter and tighter so you know typically we are working with um progressive operators that are already performing really well that can that have the observation skills to kind of go oh hang on actually this this situation's getting worse so i've got another cropping guy that i'm working with in new zealand and he he grows for seed so like you know seed crops and um this season working with us you know, we work through how, how would we pull a fungicide out, for instance. So he trialed one block of radish um, by pulling out the fungicide and putting in some biological treatments. Um, so we used some trichoderma and some pseudomonas and some mycorrhizae that went down with the seed as well as feeding biology while we were doing it. Um, 
and he did two blocks that were using the fungicides. Well, the block without the fungicide just looked absolutely fantastic. And what he noticed was every time he applied the fungicide, the plant stopped growing for like two weeks. So when the seed guy came along and, and had a look at his crop, he went, oh, you don't need to put any more fungicide on this crop. It looks great. And, and my client said, well, actually, to tell you the truth, I'm not putting any fungicide on. So when they harvested it, the seed company gave him a call and said, this is the best seed that we've seen in all of the seed that's come out of New Zealand that they were harvesting. They said it had the top grade, it had the less um, sort of secondary size seed and the less dis discard. And there's other two crops that had had the fungicide performed average. And so what we're seeing is those fungicides actually having an impact on the physiology of a plant. So they, they reduce the plant's ability to produce secondary metabolites like something like salicylic acid. So they're what the plant uses for plant defense. So every time you're applying a fungicide or herbicide or a pesticide, it's changing that plant physio physiology so that it becomes more susceptible to pest weeds and diseases. Okay. So it's a really great um, business model because apply my product, you're going to need more of my, of my product. Um, and that's pretty much the vicious cycle that, that most producers are on, unfortunately. So it gets really hard to swing from one branch to another. Um, mm. Yeah, and I, and I can understand that, that concern about risk, but really it is, you know, how do we feed biology in that process of transitioning? But it's interesting you said that. If, if, he, if the person who was um, producing that seed, that was better quality seed, which means that, you know, that they're going to be able to, because it seems like the farmers are the ones that are in the pinch, you know. It's, yes. They're, they're squeezed for, for the cash. They got the massive, you know, overheads. And yes. if they don't do what, you know, what they're basically told, then they're going to go bankrupt. That's right. And they live on such a thin wedge. And I know there's been a few reports lately about profitability in, um, in farming. And I mean, I think they did one out of Canada and they showed that pretty much, you know, no matter what happens, the supply companies do fine and the input companies are doing fine and the banks are doing fine, but the farm is the one that where the buck always lands with. They're the ones mm. that are always feeling the pinch. They've, they've never been more profitable, even though we've got more and more efficiency and all these things coming through. So they're, they're always on that edge, which is a really scary place to be. And where they get information from is these supply companies that go, whoa, you know, you couldn't pull your fungicide because, you know, there's this pressure coming in and we've got these pests now, so you're going to have to apply this pesticide. And mm. actually those are the things that are causing the problems and, and then people don't know how to get off that, and they're really scared because they got massive amounts of debt. So, I don't yeah. envy them. No. Yeah. As mm. you probably know, in Western Australia, there's a high rate of suicide because you know yeah. people are just. It's it's not a not a great situation. But uh, you know, I wanted to, to touch on something that you mentioned just previously about mindset and about well, there's yeah. there's the personal developed side of mindset, but you also would mentioned that you're reducing your nitrogen in the soil in, in that one in uh, Canada. People, yeah. Most people are like, well, we need the nitrogen in the soil. So what's, yeah. what's this all about? Well, um, yeah, that whole argument is quite ridiculous, really, when you think about what's all around us. <laughs> you know, we're talking about 78% nitrogen in the atmosphere, and it's like, why are you pouring nitrogen on? Like, I've been on some operations in New Zealand recently that are putting up to 700 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare, which it's just environmental terrorism, really. Wow. Um, and, you know, most of that's going up into the atmosphere, into the waterways. So our current way of dealing with nitrogen is very inefficient. So... Even if you're a good producer, you might use maybe 90, I mean, you might use 35% of the nitrogen that's applied, but 
globally, it's only 5%. So for every 100 kilos of nitrogen that's being applied to land, most of it's going up into the air or into the waterways. So that's where biology come in. So immediately, anytime you see where there's a lack of efficiency, we can pick up efficiencies through working with biology. So I get really mm. excited and go, well, we can pick up whatever you've been putting on. We can drop that. I mean, we can drop nitrogen by 30% without even thinking um, by just putting a, um, some humic acid. So something to feed um, biology on when we're doing a nitrogen. Um but yeah, there's lots of other techniques. And, and so really, um, I don't believe we need to be putting on more than five kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year. And um, we find by just putting that little bit on, it's actually very beneficial. Um, the biologists seem to like it when you just put So this, this is soluble nitrogen? Soluble nitrogen, yeah. I mean, but if you're organic, I mean, that might be manure or okay. um, compost. You know, compost and manure obviously um, can be very rich sources of nitrogen. And actually, there's a lot of um, organic producers out there that are causing a lot of pollution because they're putting on excess amounts in the form mm -hmm. of manure or compost. <laughs> so, yeah, we're very wasteful with nitrogen. And so, for me, it's a simple one. And the most common organism reliving in soil when soils are healthy is a, is, um, a nitrogen fixer. So if, if you've got your soil system really working and really good aggregate structure, that so those crumbs, um, which probably, I don't know if Graham State talked about that, but, you know, building all that crumb and structure, that's where your nitrogen cycle is. So most of your nitrogen cycle is negatively impacted by compaction. Um, and so when you go on to, oh God, most properties I go on to have major not compaction issues. So if we can address the compaction issue, it actually helps people address their nitrogen issue. And is that through a uh, lack of air in the soil or how, how does that directly impact it? Yeah, so it's a lack of oxygen and then a lack of the biology that are fixing um, nitrogen. Okay. So root systems kind of can't get through there. The biology's not in there. Um, you end up with anaerobic conditions and what they found is soils that are compacted require 10 times more nitrogen and also lose 10 times more nitrogen to the atmosphere. So, um, you're again, that that compaction thing's a pretty vicious cycle. There's a lot of compaction issues in Western Australia. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, Nicole, your business is called Integrity Soils. Uh, where does that name come from? What does it mean to you? Yeah, so it was kind of an interesting journey. So I'd had a couple of other business names uh, that didn't really describe what I was up to. And, you know, when you look at the word integrity, um, you know, as itself, it, it describes something that is whole and complete or, um, and, you know, so for soil to have integrity, what does that mean? You know, there's a soil that can hold up and be resilient and deal with, you know, buffers the climate and extremes and, you know, just having a real resilience to it. But also um, I've been working a lot and trying to bring the sector together in New Zealand and I've done some conferences and strategic planning sessions and just saw um, what I identified as now that's not integrity in terms of what are we up to and dealing with people and in business and what do we want to see in the world and and for me that's where that whole world integrity came from which is um a, you know doing what we say we're going to do and being someone that is their word and being someone that really deals with um the wounded self if you look at some of um Professor Stuart Hill's work around agroecology and 
you know, if we really want to see transformation in the world, it takes transformation on our behalf. And if we haven't dealt with, you know, childhood trauma or whatever's going on in our lives or, you know, like things become about ourselves instead of that bigger picture, then we lose track of what integrity is, I think. So, yeah, that became quite, you know, like I have Professor Stuart Hills, he's got an artic- um, a three-page uh, discussion about what leadership is and, um, you know, integrity, I think, for me comes back to that. How do we be the change that we want to see? And, and you know, that comes back to mindset. Everything's in our being and what becomes possible comes back to being. And, um, yeah, so integrity for me is like a, a call to, to just – you know, keep that in mind whenever I'm working with people or whether I'm interacting in the world or whatever those relationships might be. What does it look like to have integrity in life? And and it's an ongoing process. I'm not saying like <laughs> I have 100% integrity in everything I do, but um, I I really work at it. So yeah, it was it was a cool journey to come up with that name. And yeah, it, it's a big call, but it's good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think about that. How do I build integrity? How do I work on my integrity? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and if we had integrity in agro ecosystems, wow, you know, what would that look like in the world? You know, that kind of gives me shivers. It's it's exciting. Um, but then it comes down to how do we treat animals? How do we interact with our children? How do we interact with staff? Um, you know, mm-hmm. how do we interact with land? If we can do that with integrity with everything that we do, we get a world that works. Amen to that. It's good stuff. It's really good stuff. So I'm really interested in talking to people about Mother Nature and the lessons that they learned from Mother Nature. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned from Mother Nature, uh, whether it's through the microbes or just any of those things that are sometimes hard to um write down, put into words, what are some of those lessons that you've learned? Yeah, it's it, it definitely is an intuitive thing for me. Like I've developed a pretty um, a pretty good sense for soil or a sense for land. Like it's a feeling, but then you've got to be able to put that into words <laughs> and got to be able to, to explain that particularly to some, you know, some pretty intensive operators. Um, so feeling doesn't cut it. Uh, but um, – yeah, it, 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 what I'm, I think some of my biggest learning is just really around the interrelationships and and just the interconnectedness with everything that we're doing on the operation. Like, you know, just even looking at that plant physiology stuff, like the fungicides or whatever, um, just the, the, the unintended consequences or how big that domino effect can be on an operation. Um, but things like water movement, you know, that's, that's really really interesting just watching how is water moving through a landscape and is it even infiltrating you know a lot of what we're seeing around the world now is you know flash floods and droughts or flash flood and drought <laughs> um, and and when you go and do infiltration tests on, on you know on anyone's place like even people could do this on their lawn you know get a piece of downpipe bang it in the ground two inches and put in an inch of water and time it and just See how long does it take. And if it takes longer than 12 minutes, your water cycle's broken. Um, and just seeing, well, that relates to airflow, and then airflow relates to nitrogen. And um, if the soils are compact and they're not breathing, well, that's all about biological life and what's happening with fungi. And, you know, just uh, uh, so often when I'm working with a producer, you start seeing, well, here are the patterns, and those patterns are telling you different 
um, different things, but it means the same thing, which is, you know, there's very low biological activity in here at all, um, or low fungal activity or, um, yeah, that the water cycle is broken or whatever it is, but it's just um, starting to read landscapes and, and it comes back to, you know, how, how would water have moved through this in nature? I mean, how naturally did this system work and what have we done to kind of mess it up and um, how can we get back to more closely how this would have been in a natural ecosystem? And, you know, it's surprising actually how much of Western Australia was grasslands because we think, oh, you know, it was gum forests. And, well, no, not not necessarily. So you've got to have a look at, you know, historically what was that landscape? What did it give itself to? And it's hard in Australia because you've got 60,000 years of um, people managing that landscape <laughs> artificially as such, but you have now a fire-adapted landscape. So, yeah, I always go back to, you know, how could this work in nature and how more closely can we align to it? Even if, say, it never had beef cattle on it, um, like for New Zealand, for instance, we never had any herbivores. How would a grassland ecosystem work, um, you know, and how do we really harness that rather than rather than trying to return to some kind of um, utopian native landscape because there's no such thing as a native landscape anywhere in the world. I mean, there's, there's you know, everywhere that human humans go, we, we modify these environments to suit ourselves or, you know, disturb an impact on it. So... You know, how do we work with what we've got right now and and do the best that we can through harnessing, you know, natural energy cycles or natural water, the carbon, the nitrogen cycle, sulfur or whatever. So, um, yeah, I'm constantly learning. It's 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 always exciting. And affirming too, you know. Um, sometimes, you know, you walk onto a place and just go, oh, okay, there's, there's something's going on. And then to have that backed up because we do a lot of, you know, laboratory testing, yeah, and then have that that hypothesis backed up is is really rewarding. Yeah, and that probably comes back to the mindset thing. What I'd have to say about probably nearly all my clients is they really they become very happy people. <laughs> like they get really lit up about soil. They get really excited about what's possible for their operations. So it it shifts from a feeling like everything's outside of your control to actually, wow, there's all this possibility, there's all these opportunities and, you know, really seizing the day. So I have to say, yeah, I work with some of the most fun people who start to see these interrelationships themselves. And, you know, after about three or four years, they, they start to inquire about things like, you know, maybe permaculture or, um, you know, key line design or whatever it might be. But those conversations become possible, whereas they might not be possible when I first start working with someone. Wow, to, to me that's really exciting because the probiotic life is more than just probiotics. It's about the greater sense of the word probiotic for life. How do we create life around us? And this is what it sounds like you're doing is actually creating life around you. And then people start to get excited mm. about other things. Yeah, yeah. You want to hear them talk about the bees and birds or they'll say – to me how they actually sat down and they observed what their cows were eating and listened to the sound of bird call and just things they've never seen before, even though they might have grown up on that piece of land and, you know, the grandparents owned it, they start to connect with the land in a different way, which just, oh, it seems to my soul, that's for sure. But, you know, like, 
it's building once you start to observe things it's like opening a door that you can never shut again and that's kind of what I see a lot of my role is 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 a catalyst for people to just open that doorway just a little bit and whatever they do with that but like yeah like I said you can't shut that door so it becomes well what am I seeing well actually I've got weeds here because either I did something with my management or there's an imbalance with microbiology or nutrients and start to see weeds as um, indicators and an opportunity instead of like, oh my gosh, I got to go out and kill it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's really interesting that you talk about weeds as opportunity. Uh, do you do mm-hmm. much with the, the high level producers uh, in terms of no-till without the roundup? You know, more like what, Gabe Brown or mm. or Ray Archuleta is doing. Um, there's guys that are getting close, um, but they're still using some glyphosate or Roundup. Um, but what we're seeing is, like, if you take the Western Australian example, if you go and look at Di and Ian Haggerty that are at Waikouchum, they are doing half rate herbicide on what. You know, what they might have done on the spray tank, they might have done 20 acres. They now do on 400 acres. I'm just plucking that number out of my head. But um, because they're not finding they need to spray everywhere, but um, they still have a little bit of a herbicide in there. But what's really interesting is when they test their wheat, they have no residue in their wheat, that actually their wheat is cleaner than a lot of the organic wheat coming out of the U.S., for instance, um, that microbiology will bioaccumulate and detoxify um yeah, even like 2,4-D or paraquat or whatever, if you've got a good biological system that's humming, they can actually break those um, products down so they don't become available to the plant. And that comes back again to building that rhizosheath. So that rhizosheath um, has the ability to buffer that plant against extremes. So that might be sodium or it might be aluminium or it might be toxins in the environment so that actually that plant is is protected and defended. So it doesn't matter if there's a big change in pH, which is a big problem in Western Australia. And, you know, if you look at aluminium, for instance, if the world knew about some of the aluminium that's coming through crops in Australia, there could be some real trouble to be had because you need biology to buffer that plant against the uptake of things like aluminium. Yeah, and that comes back to the herbicide thing again. So, um uh, I've got guys that certainly cover cropping is just taking off. Like, and I think cover cropping is giving people a doorway to step through in terms of looking at soil health and thinking about things differently, thinking about water movement. So, um, I, you know, I think the cover crop has enabled um, the step forward into regenerative agriculture that I think would have been, we've just been, I've been feeling anyway that we've been pushing up against a wall for a long time, you know, and you kind of, you get wins, but, really not feeling like soil health has been on the radar or a big topic and now suddenly it's just blown up and it's fantastic. Um, But cover crops really have helped, I guess, some of the mainstream guys take those first steps and see real benefits. Um, I think something like 200,000 acres were planted in Canada last year in cover crop. Um, I mean, it's even bigger here in the US. I don't know what the numbers are, but, yeah, you're just seeing farmers really adopt that stuff and, yeah, get some thinking about other things. It's great. It's like it opens up your mind to see the possibilities rather than just getting stuck in a rut. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, they've done some interesting studies on some of these cover crop operations um, that have come out recently just to show that um, they had 10 times less insect pests um, where they had grown a cover crop with corn than when they were doing monoculture corn and soybean. Even though the corn and soybean had had neonicotinoids and insecticides, <laughs> there was 10 times less insect pressure, like pest pressure, where they were doing cover crops. So it's just farmers starting to see that stuff, that actually we can interrupt some of these cycles by focusing on nutrition and health. You know, and I think a big part of this needs to come from consumers demanding no residue food. You know, like, like a lot of the stuff, like even Roundup, you know, it's not a food additive, so they shouldn't be applying it as a desiccant. Um, um, and then there's a lot of other products that are coming through into our food that it really shouldn't be there. Um and it takes consumers, I guess, awareness to ask for that stuff or do some of the residue testing. I mean, they did do it in um, in New Zealand, so you can look online to see what are the what are the most toxic types of plants. <laughs> you know, things like celery, you know, just full of um, pesticides. And go, oh, okay. Well, as a consumer, I'm not going to buy that. And actually, I'm going to let that company know um, that. That's not food. <laughs> and I think that's the main way we're going to change this is people actually voting with their dollars and, and calling the companies. So it's been interesting to see um, what, what's happening with General Mills here in in the U.S. Um, actually, the, the girl that I'm staying with here in Montana, she's a, she's a finalist in the General Mills Sustainable Ag Competition, and she's up hopefully for $50,000, so we're hoping that that will come through. But, you know, for General Mills to be looking at expanding into hundreds of thousands of acres um, with a focus on regenerative agriculture is exciting because they grow a lot of grain and, um, you know, obviously they do a lot of junk food type stuff, Cheerios and things, um, but they also do Annie's, um, Annie's Organics. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's uh, that's a fantastic, actually. Um, I grew up in Vancouver eating honey nut Cheerios almost every day. Yeah. <laughs> and pe- people are only where they're at. That's uh, right. It's interesting to see General Mills doing that. I didn't know that before this conversation. Yeah. So is that because of consumer demand or because of yeah. legislation? No, consumer demand. They're responding to what people are asking for. I, I really do think it's the only thing. Um, I think we can keep kind of chipping away on progressive open-minded producers or and a lot of them are sitting on the fence like even in Western Australia if you look at Diane Ian Haggerty you know they're doing an extraordinary job and their neighbors look over the fence and go wow when I get a premium I'll join you but they, <laughs> but they're not interested until then which is really interesting because I mean they're doing some extraordinary stuff especially around um, like frost frost reduction for instance so last season in Western Australia, well, the season before last, you guys had one of the worst frost episodes of all time. And some, some producers lost up to 90% of their crops. Across five disparate blocks that the Haggertys owned, they only lost 5% to frost. And the reason for that is one of the organisms that's in vermicast is Pseudomonas florensis, which is a bacteria that eats ice nucleating bacteria. So it eats the bacteria that are, that are creating frost crystals and damage on leaf surfaces. So getting back to how exciting, you know, worm extract is, 
that you know there's all this potential for things like that. So, I mean, they had they managed to harvest a crop when you know many of their neighbours were taken out. So what interests me is their neighbours see that, but it's still not enough for them to change. What they're looking for is a premium, and so yeah, those premiums come through consumer markets. And why not pay a premium if you are getting you know. 30 to 60% more nutrient density in your food. I'm happy to pay for less portion sizes if I know I'm getting nutrition. Like I'll pay more for a steak that I know is nutrient dense as opposed to a great big feedlot piece of steak. So, yeah, I think it comes back to consumers being willing to do that. And at the same time, it's actually cheaper to farm this way. So once producers come on board, um, they see the benefits in their back pocket so they don't, you don't need to necessarily be demanding a premium. But, yeah, it's got to come from, I think, consumers partnering with with the producers and say, hey, I want good quality food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think it comes back to mindset for both consumers and producers. And that's why we need people like you talking about it. Mm. Yeah. And you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. You know, it is this kind of new frontier of this conversation is happening at every every level if we're talking about education or health or food production or gardening or whatever. This There is a, a, a transformation happening in terms of how do we think about these things and how it is all inter, interrelated and it's exciting times to be here. You know, I think sometimes it can be really overwhelming and have this sense of dread and, oh, my gosh, you know, human beings, we're so destructive and – you know, we, we're just going to wipe ourselves out and wipe the planet out or whatever, you know, so especially if you're on Facebook. Gosh. <laughs> but um, actually, no, you know, we are in the middle of, of a revolution and, and it's something to be really inspired and excited about. So I think, um, yeah, for people living in the cities, it's how do you either connect to your, to your local food production um, or discover more about, you know, the companies that you are buying food from you know, and, and where did that come from? And, and the whole the whole life cycle analysis of things too, you know, if you look at dairy production in New Zealand, for instance, the amount of palm kernel extract that they're feeding cows that they import from Borneo, then they chop down the rainforest. And it's like, actually, I don't want to buy milk that's produced that way. I don't want to buy milk that's, you know, cows are being fed like that. Like, how do we inform ourselves more around how food is grown. And, you know, I think that's that comes back to that buying local thing or growing your own veg- vegetables. We did an analysis on um, the fruit and vegetables in our local supermarket and my family went on strike and refused to eat anything from the supermarket. So I had to start um, growing our own vegetables for a while, which was brilliant until um, until I got on the road, really. It's a bit hard to, <laughs> bit hard to um, yeah, Eat well when I'm travelling sometimes, but then like staying where I am right now, it's um, all grass-fed, beautiful Angus beef. Um, but yeah, yeah, know your food. Mm. For sure. You know, um, Shell Salatin talks about if each of these urban farmers got six more clients, regular clients, they would make um, be able to make their business model sustainable. So before we finish up, Nicole, you know, this podcast is called The Probiotic Life and, you know, we tend to get philosophical in the end of the conversation, mm-hmm. but is there anything that you would want to share or, you know, that complements the idea of the probiotic life, you know, for life? How do we create life around us? Mm. Mm. <laughs> so much. Um, yeah, I think... 
I think particularly if you, if you have got a, a home garden, just to really consider um, that underground workforce. And, you know, if you are seeing issues like weeds and pests and diseases or, um, you know, you're having real issues with, you know, maybe it's getting really dry or, you know, just starting to look at, okay, how do I, how do I optimize um, what I'm doing in terms of, of feeding soil life? And we use the refractometer a lot. So, um, so refractometer is a really cheap tool. It costs about 80 bucks that measures plant photosynthesis or bricks. Has anyone talked about that with you? Yeah, we talked to uh, Dan Kittridge and uh, they're developing uh, a digital one at the moment. Yeah, so a refractometer I think is a a really good investment and start measuring the vegetables that are in your garden and start uh, measuring the ones in the supermarket or at the farmer's markets because it's a pretty um, quick key to um, nutrient density and um, so one on one hand we've got nutrient density but then also the more that a plant is photosynthesizing and capturing sunlight energy then it's turning that into energy that it's pushing down through the roots through your mycorrhizae with your carbon which you would have talked about in the past I'm sure but everything comes back to how do we build carbon because carbon is basically like um, the battery in the soil or the energy that's really it's the currency of the planet um, and we've been running very low on that currency because we're running um, agricultural systems that have very low plant photosynthesis. So even though plants are photosynthesizing and growing, their bricks or the amount of sugar that they're um, forming in their leaves may in fact be quite low. And that in turn means that there's less sugars that are then going out to feed your microbes. So the whole system's really driven by sugar. Um, and this tool enables you to, to measure that for yourself. So, um, you know, it's the one thing I would do for myself if I did nothing else would be have a refractometer and start to have a look, um, you know, what is the, what is that nutrient density? And it gets really exciting in your garden become, because it becomes a game. And, like, sometimes you'll hear, like, your grandparents might say, oh, you know, when I was young, fruit tasted sweeter. And you're like, oh, that's because your taste buds are dead, nana. <laughs> but actually it was true. You know, there was that nutrient density um, – and what we've talked about in losing nutrients actually came through in flavour and in flavour profile. So biology, you know, flavour profiles are a secondary metabolite and that's passed on from having active microbiology in the system. So, you know, nutrient density and flavour profiles and flavonoids and all of that stuff, yeah, comes back to how do we support microbiology and we, we can measure that through how well is that plant photosynthesizing because it's feeding the microbiology and, and vice versa. So it's a, you know, it's a very interrelated, interconnected system, but it's one tool that we can kind of go, all right, we're, we're heading towards nutrient density in your garden. So, you know, something like a broccoli, the leaf of that broccoli should be above um, 12. And so take a measurement, have a look, is it? You know, what is your kale running at? So our kale at home used to run at 15. What that means is my t- my young son at the time used to take handfuls of kale and eat it on his way to the school bus. And I look out the window and go, whoa, <laughs> my teenage son is just taking a handful of kale to school because it's it was super sweet and super tasty. Like I'm not, a, I didn't used to be a massive kale fan, but, <laughs> you know, if it tastes sweet like that, why wouldn't you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if the kale tastes bitter, like a lot of the stuff that you get in the store, yeah. then why would you want to eat it? Mm. No, 
And so test it and you'll probably find it's running at like two or three bricks instead of 12. You know, and I think that's how we get the next generation excited too is make those greens sweet and tasty. And yeah. 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 And I was uh, listening to the interview that you did on Dirt In Your Skirt podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, yeah. Uh, you were mentioning that you've got a book or you're yeah. writing a book. Well, tell us a bit about that. Um, I'm halfway through. I actually wrote a book about four years ago and um, it got deleted off Dropbox. <laughs> and I've written like 30,000 words and it all went into the, I don't know, I don't know. I got like a forensic computer guy to have a look at my computer, you know, the guys that can find pornography from the 80s. And he's like, no, it's gone. So um, I'm, I'm re-picked myself up at uh, the beginning of this year and, and yeah, I'm about 40,000 words in. And what I'm trying to explain really is my consulting process. So maybe less of the big picture because I think there's a lot of good books around the big picture and there's a lot of good books around microbes and and, and nutrient dynamics or whatever. So what this is more is um, is stories of people in terms of how do we work with them in a consulting process? How do we identify what their limiting factors are so that what I hope is someone could pick the book up and see something in other people's stories and go, oh, actually, that's a limiting factor that we have here. We know that air is not moving into the soil, water's not working, you, uh, you know, the breakdown of, you know, thatch or whatever's not working and so I have a whole triage in terms of how I work because this is the stuff you know like if it's all in my head and it's all feeling how do you convey that to people and it's something you know people have been asking me for a long time like they want a soils for dummy book and I'm like well it's not dumb but there is definitely a process that my mind kind of goes through and, and trying to identify what is putting a drag on someone's system why is their photosynthesis not Queenie, you know why? Why is water not moving through the soil? Um, and and then going through those step by step processes. So I do I do go a little bit into mindset, and then look at you know the the role of microbiology and, and, and different things, and just use case studies. So you know we're working at the moment um, through North America and and Australia and New Zealand. So just using case studies of people I've been working with for a while, and um, who are happy to share their stories and. Yeah, because I think I think uh, for producers as well, I think probably for most people, we like hearing other people's stories. It's an easier way to convey something than something that's really dry and technical. So it's probably not going to be dry and technical enough for some people, but at the same time, I hope it's readable. Mm. That sounds exciting. Mm. I'm looking forward to reading that. Look out for it. And before we finish up, what are some of the ways that people can connect with you, find out what you're doing, what projects you've been up to, what you're up to now? Hmm. Just give yourself a bit of a plug. Yeah, great. If they want to get in touch, then my website is www.integritysoils.co.nz. Um, and then uh, yeah, if you sign up for my newsletter, we're on Facebook as well and LinkedIn and Twitter and all that usual. Yeah. That's great. We'll uh, definitely have all of the links up in the show notes. Thank you. And yeah, thank you very much, Nicole, for joining us today on The Probiotic Life. My pleasure, Ben. It was fantastic. Thank you. Make sure to check out what Nicole does at her website, integritysoils.co.nz. And as always, the show notes will be up with all of the links in there. 
And be sure to check out next week's episode with Peter McCoy as we talk all things fungi. Also, check out confiturband.com if you want to hear more of that funky little jazz piece that we played in there. And don't be shy to reach out and connect. Let us know how you've been inspired to live a probiotic life. So, until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.